Good evening. It's a joy to be with you tonight. I have a simple goal, and that's to get you out of here in time for the Super Bowl postgame show. <laughs> Those who know, no, that's a joke. I don't think I could even preach that long. But uh, no, I, I, I do have a simple goal tonight, and I, I want to answer some straightforward, simple questions about what, why we do the things that we do when we gather together to worship. Why do we sing? Is the primary focus. What is the purpose of our singing of hymns and psalms and spiritual songs? When we gather together as a church, what we do together is rather simple. We read the word, we hear the word preached and taught, we worship in song, we pray together. As the occasion fits, we keep the ordinances of the Lord's Supper and we baptize new believers. We really don't do anything else. And you may have thought at some point, well, why don't we do this thing or that thing that I've seen done in other churches? Why doesn't the pastor dress up in a silly outfit and do a skit from time to time, as sometimes happens in evangelical churches? Why don't we do those things? There's a couple of articles that were published some years ago by Nine Marks. The first one was titled, Don't Do Weird Things. And the main point was don't do that kind of thing. Just do these normal, straightforward things that we do week in and week out when we gather. And the other article was titled, don't, or it was titled Do Weird Things. But the message was essentially the same. Be weird by simply doing that normal practice that the churches have kept for many ages now since the beginning of the church. We read the word. We preach the word. We worship in song and we pray. These are simple things that we do, and I want to focus then on this one act of worshiping in song and ask the question, why do we do it? But much of what I say applies to why we do all of these things. We sing, and we could say we teach and admonish one another, or we preach, because this is God's appointed means by which he implants his word in our hearts and in our minds so that we might live lives that glorify Christ. When we sing, we are aiming to speak the word to one another in song, not so we can store up scripture for a game of Bible trivia, but so that we might, in having God's word dwelling in us, we might grow further in his likeness. And that's what we're going to find here in, the letter, in Paul's letter to the Colossians as we turn there in our Bibles. We're going to look at Colossians chapter 3, particularly verse 16 will be our focus, but we'll look at it in its context in Colossians 3 verse 12 through 17, and then we'll actually, we'll also consider it in a much broader context within all of Paul's argument in this letter to the church in Colossae. So look with me at Colossians 3, verse 12, and I'll read that through verse 17, and then we'll uh, talk about why we sing. The Apostle Paul writes, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms 
and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Father in heaven, we do pray and ask that you would inscribe your word upon our hearts and cause it to dwell in us richly, even as you call us to let it dwell in us richly. May we embrace these means that you have appointed for our gatherings together, whereby we receive the implanted word through the proclamation of your word, both from the mouth of any preacher, but also from our own mouths as we sing to you in the hearing of one another, so that we might hear truths from your word proclaimed in songs. We pray that you would so work in our lives, Lord, that Christ's word would dwell in us richly, that we might grow in his likeness. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Something that we've seen as we looked through Paul's letters as a, this brief survey is that the same sorts of problems confronted all of the churches of the Gentiles. And the church in Colossae is no different. There were two pressures in the, in the Roman world as, as uh, Christians preached the gospel and churches were planted and Paul was a, was a major force in, in terms of planting churches. There were two pressures that confronted the early church and there were two ways and two philosophies, you might say, uh, on how to combat those pressures. The pressures were, first, that most of these Christians were coming out of a Gentile world. As the gospel spread to the Gentiles, it wasn't just Jewish people anymore. It was people who came from the Roman world, came from the Gentile world, and they were leaving behind the practices of their former lives as pagans. In the pagan world, in the Roman world, they were given to all sorts of immorality. Slander would have been commonplace. Deceitfulness and business practices and, and what have you. Uh, selfish ambition. All of those would have been natural ways to live your life in the Gentile world. And there was always that pressure to go back to that way of life, whether because of the threat of persecution or pressure from family or friends or community. There would have been pressure upon these new believers to return to their former life. And we can see that in Paul's letters to the Colossians. For example, in verse 21 of chapter 1, he says to them, And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel, that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. And so Paul, as he writes to them, he acknowledges that they formerly were alienated from God, they were hostile in mind, and that kind of life was characterized by the doing of evil deeds. But God has reconciled them. He has brought them to himself. And so now they've left behind that former way of life and embraced this new way of life. Paul will say this again in chapter 3, verse 7. As he's listed a number of vices, he says, In these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. And then he lists many of those vices again. So there's this pressure to go back to the Gentile uh, world, go back to the pagan way of living in which, uh, from which they came out. But there's a second pressure, namely the Jewish pressure uh, to embrace the Old Covenant regulations that were given to Israel. What I, what I mean there is what we've, we've encountered in Paul's letters, uh, these groups with, within the early church, 
that are sometimes called the Judaizers. Sometimes they're called the circumcision party. Sometimes Paul even goes so far as to call them false teachers. But they are people from, some, uh, from a Jewish background who, uh, in some sense, have embraced Christ, but not fully. And they're calling upon early Christians to deal with that pressure from the pagan world by embracing the regulations of the law that was given to Moses. All sorts of old covenant regulations. And that is a major concern for the church in Colossae that Paul confronts. You can see that looking at verse 16 of chapter 2 and following. Paul writes these words, Therefore let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, or with regard to a festival, or a new moon, or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind and not holding fast to the head, from whom the whole body nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments grows with a growth that is from God. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teaching. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body. But they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. So you can see what Paul is confronting there is a religion that is bound up in regulations, prohibitions. Don't do this, don't do that. And you can imagine what he might be referring to. Things like, uh, don't work on this day. Uh, Don't eat this kind of food. Don't touch that sort of thing. You can think of the cleanliness laws from Leviticus. And then also some positive commands like, keep this festival, keep this, uh, this celebration at the new moon, keep this Sabbath day, and so on and so forth. And all of those regulations drawn from the law of Moses, they, they would have thought, well, that is what's going to keep me holy. That's what's going to keep me from the temptations of going back to this pagan world. And Paul's saying quite the opposite. It doesn't do any good. It belongs to something that is, uh, is a shadow of the real substance of this life in Christ. There was a time when those things were given by God to his people for a purpose, but that time had passed away with the coming of Christ. We're going to see why that, has, why that might be. As we think about the philosophies that confronted the Colossians, two philosophies, one represented by that Judaizing group and one represented by Paul. The philosophies were how to deal with that Gentile pressure. You see, that idea of uh, dealing with it through prohibitions has to do with something like emptying yourself or guarding yourself or cordoning yourself off from everything that might tempt you to act in a sinful way. You could think of a cup and a a dirty cup and you say, well, what do I do with that dirty cup? I remove all the dirt and then I put it in a clean place where nothing can get to it. And that might work for a cup to keep that cup clean. No impurity can come and make it dirty. But it doesn't work for us. Paul says it's of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh because what's different between you and I and that cup is is the flesh. Our flesh is corrupted. Our flesh is fallen. And the fact of the matter is we can't separate ourselves from ourselves. Those regulations are not going to keep us holy. Living that kind of life 
even today, of saying, well, if I just put all of these fences, if you will, all of these walls in my way to keep me from acting in a way that is sinful, then I'll, be, I'll live a holy life. And then I just think to yourself and ask yourself, how is that working out for me when I've d tried to do that in the past? It does not really work very well if that's all we ever do or if that's what we focus and the focus of our life. Paul's philosophy for dealing with that pressure is something different. It has to do not with so much uh, guarding oneself uh, as the primary focus, but rather being filled, rather being, uh, living a life where you're, uh, you're being filled with that which is good and desirable, and that is accomplished through something we call union with Christ. Paul doesn't use that language, union with Christ, but he uses this simple phrase again and again, in Christ. He speaks about what life is like being in Christ. Look at chapter 2, verse 6 and 7, if you go back a little bit. He says, therefore, as you received Christ, Jesus, the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. Now, there perhaps are echoes of something we, we find in Galatians, where Paul confronts the Galatian church, because they're dealing with the self-same problem. The, uh, in Galatia, they're, they're tempted to go back to the same kind of uh, embrace of the old covenant regulations and the rules. And Paul says, did you begin by the Spirit and now you're being perfected by the flesh? And the idea is that when you came to Christ by faith, it was a work of the Spirit to regenerate you and to cause you to be born again. That's something that the Spirit did in you. But now, okay, so now you're going to keep yourself in this faith by your own strength in the flesh? No, 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 Paul would tell the Galatians. You need to continue in the Spirit just as you began in the Spirit. And the same thing he's saying to the Colossians here. As you received Christ, Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him in the same way in which you received Him. Continue to walk in Him, rooted and built up in Him, and established in the faith just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. And so then he goes on to say, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition. And all of those issues that he has with religion that is based simply on prohibitions and regulations. Rather, there needs to be an act, two, two acts that correspond to one another. There is something that might feel like an emptying, but rather, Paul's going to use different language. It's going to be rather the language of putting something to death, and then there's going to be the language of putting something on, as in putting on the new self like it's a new garment. We're to live a different kind of life life in union with Christ that is characterized by the new life that God has given us. Let me explain what this all means. Union with Christ is like the union of a branch with a vine. Jesus uses that image in his own discourse to the disciples in the upper room. We find it in John 14 through 16 where he says, I am the vine and you are the branches. Now, a branch can be separated from that vine, and it can be distinguished from that vine, but if you separate the branch from the vine, it's separated from its source of life, it's no longer nourished, and it's no longer fruitful, and it, as, it, the longer it's separated without being grafted, in, grafted back in, eventually it will wither and it will die. Christ is the vine, we are the branches, we are united with him like branches in a vine, and we must remain in him. Similarly, this is the imagery that we find in Colossians. Union with Christ is like the members of a body being connected to the head. Here you see in chapter 2, verse 10, 
where Paul uses this language, and then we'll again, we'll see it in verse 19. In chapter 2, verse 10, And you have been filled in him, who is the head of all rule and authority. And then if you look down to verse 19, he talks about holding fast to the head, from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. This idea is that uh, just as the uh, uh, branch can be distinguished from the vine, yet it depends upon the vine, so too my arms and my, my feet, my hands, they can be distinguished from my head and yet separate my arm from my body. I won't die, but that arm will very soon decay and disintegrate. It won't have any vitality. But when it's connected, when it's in union with the body, controlled by the head, it all works together. It all is nourished by what's going on with the head, the food that comes in through my head. It's all being controlled by my mind, by my head. This is the imagery that helps us to understand union with Christ, the church united to Christ. He is our head, and it's through the Spirit of God who unites us together. The same Spirit who rested upon Christ in his incarnation, who filled him and empowered his mighty works in his human life, the same Spirit whom he has given to us, who fills us, and who works in us to produce the fruit of the Spirit. And so we are united with Christ, and this is an essential aspect of Paul's teaching and his argument in Colossians. And what follows from this union with Christ is something important for us to understand, both in terms of Colossians' argument and in terms of our, our life, is that because of our union with Christ, we share in his death and his resurrection. It's our death and our resurrection. Not figuratively, it really is. It's spiritually our death and resurrection. It will be bodily our resurrection when he comes again and transforms us or raises us from the grave, depending on where we are at that time. But it is our death, our real death and our resurrection. That's what Paul says. Look at chapter 2, verse 20. If with Christ you died, with Christ you died, to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do you see what Paul is saying? That kind of regulated religion, religion based on don't do this, don't do that, don't do this, don't do that, that kind of religion is not consistent with our new life in Christ. It doesn't work. It didn't work for Israel, and it doesn't work for us. It was never intended to, because the law, though it is righteous and it is good, it was never given power to work in us to make us holy. It was only given to show us how far we fall short, to show us what true righteousness looks like. But the Spirit of God has power to do these things. That's Paul's argument in Romans, chapters 7 and 8, and I don't want to go down the rabbit trail of looking at other texts right uh, tonight, but this is the idea. So you're not to go back to this way of religion, this way of living your life that isn't really effective when you have what is so much better and is powerful, namely the Spirit of God working in you. We're to live in accordance with this newness of life, the fact that we are united with Christ. We have died to that old way. We have been raised to a new way. And so we'll see that again in this, these key verses at the beginning of chapter 3. If then you have been raised with Christ, Paul says. If then you have been raised with Christ. I remember I memorized for a summer camp as a boy Chapter 3, verses 1 through 4 of Colossians. I had no idea what it meant. It made no sense to me. But I came home as a boy, and I told my dad what I had learned. I recited it. I still have it in my memory in the New King James. And I have to 
I read the ESV and it sounds strange to me. And I remember him looking at me and saying, that sums up the whole of the Christian life. And I just looked at him with this look of, I have no idea what you're talking about. But it stuck in my mind and, and, and it caused me to think about these, these uh, words and this, these verses for many years uh, to come. It is really the hallmark of our life. Union with Christ in his death and his resurrection so that we receive all the saving benefits of his death and resurrection because of that union. If then you have been raised with Christ, you have been raised with Christ. If you are a believer in Christ, you have been raised to this newness of life. We sometimes call it the new birth. We sometimes call it regeneration. Here we call it being raised with him, in union with him. We're speaking about the same idea. So if that's true of you, Paul can simply say, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died. You say, I haven't died. Spiritually, you have died in union with Christ. You have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And there's this glorious truth about the fulfillment, the, 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 the ultimate uh, fulfillment of this reality in your life, that you've died with Christ, you've been raised with Christ, your life is hidden with Christ, so that when Christ, who is your life, appears, you think of that idea of the branches in the vine. The vine is the source of nourishment, the source of life to the branches. So too, Christ is our head. He is the vine. He is the source of our life. He is our life. When he appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. That final stage of our union with Christ, where outwardly and bodily we are transformed to be glorious like, gloriously like him in, perfect, uh, in, in total perfection. That is the ultimate end of union with Christ. But it's already a reality of our life now that we have this new life we're living in this new way. We ought to be. And so we ought to be pursuing holiness in, the, in union with Christ, not through the old manner of regulations that come through the law. And so Paul will go on in verse 5 and say, so put to death, put to death what's earthly in you, those things that are in you because you still inhabit the flesh that has not been transformed yet. It's still, it's like a, uh, you know, if you, if you have an uh, appendage amputated, people have phantom pains as if it's still there. I mean, that's not the perfect illustration. But there's still a vestige of the old man that belongs to the flesh. And so we need to be about putting those things to death. And he lists what these kinds of things are. Those things that would have been rampant in Colossae and certainly are rampant in our own culture. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion. Not all passion. I'm very passionate as I preach. But Evil passions, you can, you can see in that context. Evil desires and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these two, you once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, which is hatred, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have... Put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Now, what we see in this text is that Paul has no problem with saying don't do something. But it's not a matter of, of, of creating artificial regulations, if you will, that are meant to keep us from doing the things that are really, truly corrupting. You remember how Jesus, during his life, 
talked about the difference between um, uh, when he talked about uh, the, all the washings that the, the ritual washings that the Pharisees engaged in. And he taught that you're not defiled by what goes into your body, but what comes out of your body. What comes out of you? What comes out of a man, then he says, are the evil thoughts, the, the kind of wickedness that is natural to our flesh. This is why kind of cordoning ourselves off from the world is not going to be effective in achieving holiness because we're still in our flesh and we can't really separate ourselves from this fallen body. That's not going to happen until we die or until Christ returns and transforms us into Christ's perfect likeness. And so we live in this life and uh, we, we need to put those things to death, but we're not going to be able to effectively achieve that simply by regulations. But Paul can say, don't do certain things. Don't lie to one another. Don't, uh, uh, d- don't slander each other. Don't speak in obscene ways. Don't be given to evil passions and desires and covetousness and idolatry and these kinds of things. It's not that he has no problem with saying there are things that we ought not to do. It's about how do we get there, Right? We get there by putting to death the evil things that are in us, in our flesh, that is, and putting on what corresponds to our newfound life in Christ. Like you would put on a garment or a new set of clothes, so too you put on the new self. And so Paul can go on to say in verse 12, put on then as God's chosen ones, as we read earlier, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts. Put on kindness. Put on humility. Put on meekness and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you are called in one body. And be thankful. And so, Living as people who are united with Christ, as one body united in Christ, we ought to be marked by these virtues which Paul sets before all of the churches. We see it in Galatians and the fruit of the Spirit. We see it in Philippians, especially as he highlights humility in Philippians chapter 2. And as he calls in Philippians 4, the Philippians to, um, to let their minds dwell on that which is true and honorable and right and pure and lovely of good repute, the same sorts of lists of those virtues that correspond to faithful Christian living that really correspond to living uh, like Christ, being Christ-like. He puts those forward and he, he tells us not to be characterized by those other, um, other uh, vices that tip, are typical of, of human culture, of our fallen self, of our fleshly self. But we step back from that we say, well, that's all well and good, but it's very abstract, right? Sometimes it's helpful to have a concrete action that we can partake in. Wouldn't it be good to have some sort of regulations that will help us to actually put on the new self, to say, do this and don't do that? And just That's the, that's the attraction of laws and a regulated religion. It's, it's at least it's clear. It's at least straightforward. If I say to you, don't touch a dead carcass or you're going to be unclean for so many days, and if you happen to touch a dead carcass, then what you need to do is you need to do certain cleansings and washings. You say, well, the procedures are really clear. If you're an engineer, that really appeals to you. Uh, if you, you purchase uh, an appliance uh, and it comes to your door and you throw away the manual, maybe that doesn't appeal so much to you. But you, you can see the clarity of it, the precision of it. But the problem, one of the problems, of course, is it doesn't deal with every single possible situation. 
You go through the old covenant law and you read all sorts of regulations that don't make sense in our 21st century Western world. They say, you say, build, build a parapet around your roof. And, well, we don't have flat roofs. We don't really go up on our roofs. What's the point of having railings around the roof? You know, it's, it's just a different context and different situation. And we'd have to have a whole new set of regulations and commands. And for all its clarity, it would be rather rigid and wooden. But if the Spirit is working in us to produce these fruits, like gentleness, like self-control, like patience and kindness and goodness, then we will be able to apply those things in the situations that we encounter in our lives. It's like the difference between someone who can follow a recipe to cook a dinner at night and a master chef like uh, uh, someone, my neighbor some years ago, who made this amazing soup. And I said, well, what's your recipe? And she said, I just imagine what it will taste like and I make it. <laughs> amazing. And it was the best curry soup I'd ever had in my life. But you, you see that, that, that idea is that there's, there's a master, there's, a, there's someone who has the ability to reason through the difficulties and the challenges of life uh, without all of those procedures and regulations. And, and that's the kind of life that Paul is encouraging the Colossians to embrace and to pursue. And he does this because he knows that it's possible. They really can do this. Not perfectly. Notice that he did not say that you have been fully renewed in the image of Christ, but he says that you are being renewed day by day in the image of Christ. There's a gradual process in the Christian life until we die or until, until he comes, whereby we're slowly being conformed into his image. But we are able to do it because the Spirit of God is in us producing those fruits. But we need to pursue that Christ-likeness through the means that are appropriate to our new life as people who are born again, people who are regenerate, people who are in union with Christ. So we come back and say, at least this would be, it would be helpful if we had something concrete to latch on to that will help us to achieve this. We come to verse 16 of chapter 3 and we find something concrete to latch on to that will help us to achieve this. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. What Paul says to the Colossians, he says to us, all Christians, at every time and every place, you are to let God's word abide in you, indwell in you, inhabit you as if you are its house. He doesn't just say the word of God. He says the word of Christ. Christ is God, but he puts the focus on Christ and you're to let it dwell in you richly like a house that is filled with all sorts of treasures. You are to be that house and God's word is to be dwelling within you lavishly. And How do you do that? There are two ways that he puts before us teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. This corresponds to the preaching of the word in the gathered worship, the, the teaching of the word in our gathered worship, the reading of the word, and even in our personal dealings with one another as we might uh, instruct one another or we might rebuke somebody or we might challenge someone to think in a way that accords with God's word. But our focus is on the second thing as we've dealt with that issue uh, in previous sermons in this series. We also do it. It's not just the preacher is what I'm saying. It's not just the preacher and the person who's called to teach in some way who, um, who uh, enables us and helps us to, uh, to essentially bring the word, uh, invite the word into our hearts to dwell in, in us. But we do this all for one another when we sing. That's the second thing. You see, 
It says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Here's the first way, teaching and admonishing one another. Here's the second way, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. When we sing in our gathered worship, we are singing truths that are drawn from God's word to one another, and that, in effect, is leading to the uh, implantation, if you will, of the word of God in our, in our hearts and in our minds. That is what enables us to do what Paul says at the very beginning of chapter 3. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above. Set your minds on things that are above. How do you do that? When the word is implanted in your heart. When the word of Christ is implanted in your heart. When your minds through God's word are fixed on Christ and who he is and what he has done for you. That leads to that growing holiness. Now, who is the power, the one who is, who is working that in your life? It's the Spirit of God who is pleased to use His Word to work in our lives to conform us to the image of Christ. But that Word's got to get into our hearts and our minds some way. And one of the crucial ways that, we, that, that that's done is through the singing of songs and hymns and spiritual songs. And you can see why that's uh, a, a very good method, if you will, or a, a way to do this. You sometimes talk about earworms at home when a song gets stuck in your head and you can't stop singing it. And that's what songs tend to do, especially a, a good tune, a good melody. You get the words in your mind and in your heart, and you can call them to mind. Even in this letter to Colossians, at the very beginning, in chapter 1, verse 15, it seems that Paul is quoting a hymn that they would, they would have sung in the early church to teach them about who and what Christ is. He is the image of the invisible God, he writes in verse 15 of chapter 1, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and him, in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. That, in its original language, has a lyrical quality that, that suggests that it might have been a hymn that was sung in the early church and that Paul now is quoting to them because it's true and it's right and it's something that they need to understand about who Christ is. And we can see the same thing in Philippians chapter 2, some of the language in Philippians 2 when Paul speaks about Christ's humiliation and exaltation seems to have a lyrical quality that might reflect that it is a hymn that was sung in the early church. This is part of the value of singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. And so it's a central part. It's an essential part of our worship together. We must do it. We do it. But we don't simply do it because it's a command. That would be ironic for Paul to say, don't, submit, don't go back to regulated religion. And then you say, well, why, why do we sing? He says, because I commanded you to do so. That really would, would work against his argument. But there's a purpose for the command, and we want to understand the purpose for the command Singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs together in our corporate worship enables us to receive the word implanted in our hearts. So what should we sing then? And how should we do it? Well, psalms are psalms. How do we sing psalms? With a psalter. Now we have psalms in our hymnals and we do sing some of those psalms. They're of course adapted to, to create the meter and the 
the rhyming that we are, that's natural in our singing. But we are singing God's word, adapted for song. I think, think of this Psalm 23, this version of Psalm 23. The Lord's my shepherd I'll not want. He makes me down to lie. In pastures green he leadeth me, the quiet waters by. You can see, you hear the words of Psalm 23, but you hear how they're slightly adapted so that they could be sung according to the tune of a hymn. My soul he doth restore again, and me to walk doth make within the paths of righteousness, e'en for his own name's sake. And on it goes, and that's from the Scottish Psalter written in 1650. And I can look at just about every psalm in this book, and there's five or six uh, different versions of each psalm put to music by people like Isaac Watts and and um, uh, John Ryland and so many other Christians from history. And we sing those, and people are still doing it, and we ought to sing that. It's a way to get God's word into our heart and in our minds. But he doesn't simply say sing psalms only. He says to sing hymns and spiritual songs. And these, this language, this, this kind of speech, when it's used in Scripture, one theme, one theme or consistent pattern that we see again and again is that these are directed to God, and especially in the book of Revelation, they're directed to Christ. As praises to God and to Christ for what he's done and who he is. We sing praising God for what he's done in our lives. And those praises ought to reflect truths found in Scripture, maybe even correspond with what we find in Scripture itself. And what we do sing when we gather together on Sunday does just that. Now, there's a challenge to us then as we consider these because when we sing, I, I suspect if you're like me, it's easy to check out. When we sing a hymn and you've thought nothing about the words and you say, well, that was a lovely tune and you have no idea what we just said or maybe I'm just the only one. But I was imp it was impressed upon me from a young age by my father that uh, I ought to pay attention to the lyrics even if I don't always do a good job of it. And I want to share some lyrics of a few hymns that are familiar to you with you to impress upon you how these, these are communicating the truth of God's word to our hearts. Here is the sixth verse of a hymn by S.J. Stone, The Church's One Foundation. And it speaks about what I've been talking about this evening, union with Christ. Speaking about the church, this sixth verse says, Yet she on earth hath union with God the three in one and mystic sweet communion with those whose rest is one. That's the saints who have, uh, the, the saints in every place, the Christians from every time and place. We have sweet communion with them through this union with Christ. It says, O happy ones and holy, Lord, give us grace that we, like them, the meek and lowly on high, may dwell with thee. What beautiful words to celebrate the truth of union with Christ and to impress that upon our hearts and in our minds. Or consider the third verse of Samuel Crossman's My Song is Love Unknown, which if you look at that whole hymn, you can see that it's a wonderful summary of the narrative of every gospel. You say, well, I can't remember all the narratives of the gospel. You can say, well, I can remember the verses of My Song is Love Unknown, and I can sing that and remember what the gospels say to me. Here's the third verse. Sometimes they strew his way, and his sweet praises sing, resounding all the day, hosannas to their king. We think about the passage we looked at this morning from Luke's gospel as Jesus entered Jerusalem. We didn't find hosannas there, but in the parallels we do. But then there's a turn in that verse. Then crucify is all their breath, and for his death they thirst and cry. And you have the, 
these, these, this, this summary, these words that are reminding you of the gospel narratives that you know. And one more, the first verse of Thomas Kelly's Stricken, Smitten, and Afflicted. We recall the words of Isaiah 53. He was stricken, smitten, and, and afflicted, Isaiah will say. And Thomas Kelly has used those very words in this hymn. Stricken, smitten, and afflicted. See him dying on the tree. Tis the Christ by man rejected. Yes, my soul, tis he, tis he. Tis the long-expected prophet, David's son, yet David's Lord. By his son God now has spoken. Tis the true and faithful word. We sing these hymns and hymns like it because they impress these biblical truths upon our hearts and in our minds. And singing draws upon something that's true in our earthly nature to turn our minds and our hearts toward heavenly things. So what kind of principles then can we apply to the way in which we do it in our life together? And we'll conclude with these considerations. Sometimes we get in debates about what's better, traditional or contemporary styles of music. I want to put that debate to rest, uh, to put it aside, not because it's completely unimportant, but sometimes it veers into, ironically, something like the prohibitions that frustrated Paul. We prohibit a certain style of music for a vague and uncertain reason through a thousand associations. Personally, I favor a traditional style in our worship. I love it. But I tell people it's because I prefer it. It's a matter of preference, not prescription. So I don't want us to be condemning of those who favor a more contemporary style in their hymns or use instrumentation that's more contemporary. In my personal listening, I listen to all sorts of eclectic music that is like bluegrass and what have you, but has wonderful lyrics and puts the Psalms word for word to music and this kind of thing. I'd love to recommend those to you. We can't sing them here because they're impossible to sing unless you're very good at it. But uh, there's nothing wrong with one style or another, but so long as we submit to certain principles that fulfill what we're called to do here in Colossians 3.16. The first is that instrumentation should aid the congregation in the worship, because the focus is on the congregation singing the words that we sing. The focus is not entertainment, it's not performance, it must not be. The music should not be distracting, it should not be overpowering. It should be uh, promoting the congregation's singing. And so the hymns also then should be singable. Not so high that all the men stop singing once you hit the high notes. Uh, not so low that only the men are singing. When you get to the low notes, something that's singable, and guess what? The hymns that we've sung for centuries are designed to be just like that. The instrumentation should aid the congregation because the focus is on the congregation singing, and each one of us hearing other congregants sing those words that should encourage our hearts. A second principle, the music and the lyrics should draw our attention to Christ. It's about the word of Christ dwelling in us richly, which puts the focus on Christ. And therefore, any kind of music or lyrics that draw our attention to other things, whether it's ourself or something else, however good those things may be, are not what we need to be singing. It also shouldn't be a performance, even if the words are wonderful, but it's a performance where someone is performing so wonderfully that we look at that person and say, aren't they a wonderful musician? 
That's not the point of our singing in corporate worship. There's a time and place for that, but not in the gathered worship. The gathered worship is about us singing the glories and praises of Christ. And this is, can be a problem in modern lyrics and older lyrics. Sometimes you encounter a, a hymn in a hymnal that seems more like something that's meant to motivate young men to go off to war or people to embrace some kind of national cause. There's nothing wrong with that, but there's something wrong with it in the gathered worship because it's not drawing our attention to Christ. It's drawing our attention to something or someone else. Or a hymn might speak biblical truth, and yet it's pointing our attention to ourselves, either discouraging us or pointing our attention to ourselves and exalting us, but ultimately leaving our attention on ourselves, and again, not on Christ. Our lyrics should point us to Christ, and the music should complement that. Along with that, the lyrics should rightly expound biblical truth. They should have a profound depth to them, not simply so shallow that you could replace a few words and someone could sing it about uh, his boyfriend or girlfriend, right? The music should complement the truth that we find in Scripture. It doesn't mean we need to only sing word for word what we find in Scripture, but those truths, as I showed you from some of those lyrics that I read, should be biblical truths of a profound sort that inspire our hearts to rejoice and to praise our Lord. We want the word of Christ to dwell in us. And we do that when we have lyrics and music that complement that purpose. And finally, as we see in this text, our musical worship should be filled with joy. It should be thoughtful and it should be full of gratitude. It doesn't mean we never sing something that has the quality of a lament, like, O sacred head now wounded, but it means that there is a profound joy even in that lament as we contemplate what Christ has done to purchase our salvation and what he continues to do in us. That's why we sing. That's why we must sing. That's why singing is so essential. It's why other things like skits are not, we, we don't do those. Because however fun they might be, they don't, they're, they're not appointed by God as the means by which uh, he, the, he causes his word to dwell in us. These are the means that he's appointed. We find it here in Colossians 3. We find it elsewhere in Ephesians 5, for instance, and elsewhere in Scripture. He's given us these things as tangible, concrete ways that we can fulfill what we are called to do, to live out this life in union with Christ in the interim while we wait for the completion of what he is doing and will bring to completion at the day of his return. And so let us sing with all our might. Let us sing with joy. Let us sing with thoughtful gratitude so that the word of Christ might dwell in us, so that we might speak the word to one another and so grow in Christ's likeness. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we do thank you for your goodness to us and that you have given us this tangible means by which we can grow in the likeness of Christ and by which we can worship and praise you and receive your word implanted in our hearts and minds. We pray that you would make us a people who are thoughtful as we sing, who consider the words that we sing, and who uh, consider the relationship of those words to the truth that we find in Scripture. And doing that with engaged minds, Lord, we pray that you would work through this means that you've appointed by the power of the Holy Spirit in us to conform us more and more to the image of Christ until the day of his return. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.